you sprain your eyeballs rolling them? I think I sprained my eyeballs with that one. I don't I don't know what I'm saying. I'm not in a funny mood tonight. So I don't You are wearing pants. That could be the problem. That is true. <laughs> see the problem is I'm not wearing anything under these pants. Ah, uh, I see. And we still have a house full of children. No free balling it on the rope on the Even if they are on a different floor right now. Especially because we might have a power outage. And then I got to run around half naked in the dark. That is a recipe for disaster. It's not. As we've learned. You can bump into stuff. There are sharp corners. It's not good. <laughs> Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm Liz. I'm Chad. And here we are in episode 73, the... Exciting conclusion of The Way of Kings by Bren Sanderson. Next week, we will be wrapping up our coverage of this book with fantasy casting, your fantasy casting, uh, mega theory wrap up, kind of end of book discussion. And after that, we are going to take a one-week break, but we will return the week of Thanksgiving when we will be starting The Words of Radiance, book two in the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Very exciting. Super exciting. Are you ready to get into this? I am ready. I have been, I forgot how exciting this section of chapters is. You know, the last section that we covered, uh, the battle and the, the face-off with Sadius, that all is is so exciting, and I've been looking forward to that. I forgot how much good stuff is here at the end of the book as well. Yeah, I don't think I liked it as much as the section last week, but close to. This end of the book, it's interesting because it, it definitely, it gives you the feeling of a denouement and a, and a wrap-up, but at the same time, it actually raises a lot of new mysteries. Yeah, it's a really well-done ending of a first book for a series. Not a lot of authors do that well. It's true. So that that's good, and it's impressive. Brandon Sanderson's ability to plot things out, I mean, obviously, this is the only book I've read so far, but his ability to plot things out, sort of keep things interesting from that perspective is is very good. It's interesting. I read a quote by Brandon Sanderson today. Now, this is not vetted, but someone on the internet said that he said it, so we all know that it must be true. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said, I kill vampires every morning and drink their blood. <laughs> exactly. Well, this quote from this supposed quote from Brandon Sanderson was that he said about the Stormlight Archive, don't read this first. Read something else by me first. Don't read this until you know that you can trust me. And I thought that was interesting. And of course, you you have enough trust in me that you were willing to stick through it. But you understand why I could understand why someone would say that about this book. Yeah, because it's 900 pages of setup. And even now, I don't feel like we're really into the main story. 
Correct. It's so much set up. And if you're wondering the whole time, like, is this just going to fall apart? You know, but if you have read some of his other works and seen how he crafts stories, then you would, I guess, know that, okay, I saw what he did with Mistborn. I saw what he he's done with these other series. You're willing to give him a little more leeway in that. You just kind of had to trust me that I've yep. been like, no, 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 man. It's gonna. It's all going to be good. It's going to pay off, I promise. Just wait for chapter 69. It'll be worth it. There have been several of our listeners who have said or questioned our decision to do this first. But I don't want this podcast to become the Brandon Sanderson podcast and us read 18 books in a row by Brandon Sanderson. So eh, we jumped right in, right into the deep end. So for me, I this is my favorite Brandon Sanderson book. This is where I feel his his craft is at its peak for me. I wanted to get you hooked on Brandon Sanderson, so I wanted you to jump right in here. Would you benefit maybe from reading Mistborn? I mean, I definitely, as you know, I've been pushing for you to read Warbreaker before we get to the end of book two. Yeah. And other people have as well. So when there's stuff like that that I feel will really enhance your understanding of or enjoyment of Stormlight, I'm going to mention those to you. Yeah. But no, I, I what I like about Brandon Sanderson's work is that you really can appreciate and enjoy each one on their own despite the interrelated nature. Yeah. All right, we're tangenting. Now let's, let's wrap it up. This is the denouement. We don't need to throw new stuff in here. <laughs> Should we get into the chapters? Yeah, let's do it. Chapter 70 is called Sea of Glass. Shalan is sitting alone in her hospital room, basically being really sad. Her almost boyfriend is dead, and her best friend slash mentor has cast her out. Her family is still on its way to ruin, and she's no closer to understanding the mysterious things that have been happening to her. Except she realizes that something about the events of Capsule's poisoning don't make sense. Yasna ate the bread, but wasn't poisoned herself. She also smelled the tainted jam, but didn't notice anything. Shalan leaves the hospital and confronts Yasna with an accusation. Yasna's soul caster has always been a fake. Yasna can soul cast on her own without a Fabriel. When Yasna denies this, Shalan reveals her knowledge of the symbol-headed creatures and the strange sea of glass beads. Shalan transports herself there by telling the ever-present symbol-headed creatures a secret truth. She murdered her father. Murder! Once there, she starts to drown, but she's saved by Yasna, who chides her for entering Shadesmar with only a single dim sphere. Shalan convinces Yasna to give her a chance to be an, an apprentice in truth, to learn about soul casting and the real research she's been doing on the Voidbringers. So right off the bat, some bombs dropped in this chapter. Yeah. Which I almost spoiled. And I apologize on the Facebook group page if I did spoil this a, t- a tiny bit. You didn't spoil it for me. Okay, good. Good. All right. So the first moment I had in this whole section of what the hell was Yasna ate the bread? I was like, son of a bitch. She did eat the bread. Yeah. Now, I remember saying to you and bringing up during the episode, hey, wait a minute. Capsule ate the jam, which was supposed to have the antidote in it. 
but he died anyway. And you were like, I don't know what to tell you. I was like that. <laughs> but I didn't know what to tell you. Sorry about your luck, pal. <laughs> but I, I forgot that she also ate the bread. Yeah. Son of a bitch. So I went back and I reread that part. And all you can tell from sort of, you know, even rereading it and looking at it is that she takes a pinch of the bread and makes a face as though it tastes bad. And I remember reading that and being like, huh, but not thinking anything of it and just sort of rolling right on through. So were you so you were surprised at this point? This realization that yeah, and then oh, how about when she reveals that Yasna hasn't even been using a soul caster? Uh, oh yeah, so I mean this whole section, like I uh, in this chapter, I felt at my dumbest. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I was like, I didn't see any of this coming. Uh-huh. Like I caught, you know, I I recalled when it was brought up that she ate the bread mm-hmm. but i didn't recall in the moment or place that hey wait a minute right she should have been poisoned i didn't th- didn't catch that the fabrioles were completely for show i remember talking about it and being like is it conceivable that she hasn't used it at this point but we don't know how often she would just soul as she randomly walking around just Soul casting things. I think I'm going to make a sandwich. Soul cast myself a sandwich. Mm-hmm. Boy, the TV right now sucks. I really want to watch some Bruce Springsteen videos. I'm going to soul cast some Bruce Springsteen videos. <laughs> like, wish I had a chair to put my feet up on. I'm going to soul cast myself a chair. Like, we don't know how often she's running around using this thing. We've only seen her to that point do it twice in the alley and then with uh, Teravangian that I can recall anyway. Well, Shalon mentions that Yasna was soul casting very casually oh, yeah. Yeah. soul casting something into a paperweight soul casting ink out of some things is and so on so she did use it pretty frequently mm, okay all right but yeah i didn't catch any of this so yeah i was feeling particularly dumb the other thing that i noted here was that it never crossed my mind after we ended part 3 where we ended Shalon and Yasna's story that they would hook back up. I just assumed. That was it. They were parting the ways. Yep. I assumed that when we found, when we hooked back up with Shalon, she would be in Yakovet or on the boat or right. something like that. But I sort of feel like I should have been able to see this coming because our first introduction to Shalon was her constantly going back to Yasna, who rejected her and told her to get lost. Mm-hmm. So thematically, it lines up with who this character is. I also thought it was very clever of Shalon to piece it all together. And I just, I love Shalon and Yasna's homance. I mean, for <laughs> womance? I don't know. Lack of a better word. Yeah. But this, like, this dynamic between the Third two of them. Third wave feminists, speak up. Homance or womance? We need to know. We do need to know. We're old. We're not up on the lingo. (laughs) I feel like one of those has to be a thing. Yeah, I don't think that's a pronoun in the new pronoun stuff that's going around. (laughs) I don't recall that. 
But for me, their their whole conversation where Shalon is well, first of all, Shalon running through the streets of Carbranth in her hospital gown. I just love it. I love that part. You know, she's been so up to this point, overthinking everything. She's been so timid. She's been just not this person who is willing to be vulnerable. And she reaches this breaking point and she just she does. She runs through the streets of the city in a hospital gown, mm-hmm. charges into her study, you know, and and you know, when she says to her, I I made a mistake and I'll make more. I need you. That's one of my absolute favorite lines. Because you've seen, I just love the way that their relationship has grown. We've seen how Yasna has become more and more. Um, affectionate towards her, mm-hmm. you know, actually kind of letting this this person into her life. And then as well, you know, Shalon, when she's sitting in that hospital room, the thing that's bothering her most is that she let Yasna down. Yeah. So now, you know, when she decides to take Shalon back and, and Shalon says to her, you know, I can be someone you don't have to lie to. This would be a mistake to turn me away. Yeah, and I think that's the line that moves her. The... I mean, I did have a thought in this section that I don't know that Shalon ever really expresses why she did it in a way that would lead Yasna to to understand. So it made it initially sort of like, well, she's not going to, why would she take her back? That just doesn't, doesn't seem like she would. But that's the one sort of line that I feel like makes it so I can say, okay, I understand. I think as well, I think Yasna really wanted a reason to take Shalon back. I think Yasna at her core is a very lonely person. And every ward that's ever come or every, every person that's come into her life, she's driven away. And to have someone who shares her love of scholarship the way that Shalon does be in her life... You know, we saw how crushed she was when she thought that Shalon had killed herself out of the academic pressure of being her ward. You know, so I think Yasna really wanted to be convinced to take Shalon back. And we know that eventually Shalon does explain the full story of what was going on with her family. But I just don't think she needed that much, that much convincing in the first place. It doesn't seem like it. I wanted to bring this up last episode, but with everything else going on, I never got around to it. But if Elikar also sees the symbol-headed creatures, does that mean Elikar can soul cast as well? We don't know. It's interesting because we've seen these... Okay, so we're seeing these supernatural abilities in characters who don't understand them. Mm-hmm. So we've seen Kaladin, who began with this relationship with Syl, and Syl tells him that his powers are because of their relationship, yeah. something they're doing together. She's giving him something, she's taking something away. And he's manifesting, though, a completely different sort of powers. Yeah. The same kind of powers we've seen Seth have, although Seth never talks about a spren or having anything to do with a spren. He talks about being given his sword. So that's like a whole different thing. Now, then we've got Shalon, who again, her powers began with seeing these spren around. But she didn't get them right away. She's just 
seeing them, they're freaking her out. They're way less approachable, I guess, than... <laughs> oh, yeah, it seems like it, yeah. Than the honor spread. But... um. But then eventually, after a time, she's now getting these powers. Now, her relationship with them, though, seems to be contingent on her telling them a truth. So that's not something we've seen with Kaladin as well. Also, although we don't know how Elakar is seeing them, we know he's seeing them in some fashion. Shallan never actually sees them with her eyes. It's only in her drawings... I think in this chapter, she says that she's sometimes starting to see them out of the corner of her eye. Oh, she does say that. Yeah, yeah. Elicar says he sees them in the mirror. So mm. I think they're they're not something that you can look directly at, which is super creepy. And the fact that they kind of hover around and talk directly into your mind, also super creepy. Well, they are super creepy. They're creepy. There's no question about that. But, and and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I feel like the Shallan chapters are, it's like three little short yeah, ones correct. that really go together. But Yasna does not see them. So we'll get in, more into that later, but. Yeah, because in this chapter, Shallan asks her that outright, and she sort of skirts the question. She doesn't answer it. Right. So, yeah, a lot to piece together, but I think what we know for sure is their powers are tied to the spren, maybe in different ways based on what kind of spren. So I have a couple of other notes. Okay. In the last section, we have Navani's comments about prayer uh, being an act of creation. Yes. And we talk about Shallan's sketch pad, and that's her sort of creating things. Mm -hmm. So what I want to know is, does that make Shallan... Like Simon from the Chalkland, chalk drawing world. My name is Simon and the things oh, I draw yeah. come true. I think it might. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it will. Also, I thought it was interesting that Shalon confronts Yasna about soul casting the bread and the jam. But her main emphasis is focusing on the fake soul caster. Like, you never even needed a soul caster. But I feel like my emphasis would be on why it was she was convinced, Yasna was convinced, that Capsule was poisoning her, but she still allowed Shallan to eat what Yasna had already presumed was poisonous. Not just during that interaction, but in all these other interactions leading up to it. That is a very good question. Because she would not eat the bread any other time than this interaction. And when she did, she soul cast it into something different because she wasn't sure. But she just let Shalon go ahead and eat it. So I, I guess for me, I would interpret that as Yasna acting out of an abundance of caution. Like, she suspected Capsule, but not... I mean, I think if she suspect, suspected him enough, she wouldn't have allowed him around. Also, I think she probably had a certain degree of confidence about her ability yeah. to purify blood. Yeah. However, that's presuming that that's how that poison acted. It could have been a poison that didn't act on blood. I just thought that was sort of an inch. She chose to focus on that. And I'm thinking, 
as she's talking about this and hey and piecing it all together, I'm like, I'm like, Yasna just let her let her poison herself. Not herself, but You know, I, I think that Yasna she was suspicious that Capsule might poison her. I don't think that she in any way would have suspected the setup that he had, that he was actually eating the poison and the antidote every single, like twice a week for however long, a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that that connected as a real possibility in her mind. I think probably maybe she suspected something would be slipped into her slice or that it was in the jam, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's certainly true. Well, that's what she says to Shalon. I assumed that the poison was in the jam. But that's a good point. It is a good point. So let's I'm talk about Shadesmar. My own point. <laughs> let's talk about Shadesmar. Yes, let's. So Yasna's a badass in Shadesmar, apparently. Yeah. She's making rafts out of beads and everything. <laughs> she just whips it up. Right. Well, the other thing I noted, too, is that, like, the moment that Shallan goes into Shadesmar, she's instantly, like, sucked down and her mouth is filled with, right. like, these black beads. And I'm thinking, I mean, is there something nefarious going on there? Or is it simply she doesn't know what the hell she's doing? I mean, you'll you'll find out eventually. Yeah, but. I feel like it. I feel like it's tied to Stormlight somehow. And, like, for people... From Roshard across into Shadesmar, they have to bring Stormlight with them or else they just sink to the bottom of a black BDC. You'll find out. I guess I will. A couple of other things. I noted reading back through that old chapter with Shallan, uh, where Shallan got poisoned and Capsule dies, that in the interactions leading up to it, when Yasna is chastising capsule capsule looks like legitimately shamed and embarrassed which i thought was interesting for a guy who's in the middle of getting ready to poison somebody so that's an interesting point because in the very beginning shallan is well she's sitting there she's sad and she's like why am i even sad over this guy because she's sad about capsule and yeah and she thinks you know I really think that he had feelings for me, even though he fed me poisoned bread twice a week for the last several months, you know, and and then she thinks about how hard he tried to get her to eat the jam and that he gave it to her first before he even ate it. It's interesting to me from what it may potentially say about Capsule that on one hand, he could be the kind of person who is going to scheme and plot to assassinate somebody, but at the same point in time to have like a legitimate affection for somebody else. We also don't know what prompted him to do that. Right. We don't know. And and again, we'll get into this in another chapter, but about the organization that he's part of, what's their deal? What kind of pressure were they putting on him? What was their ultimate goal? Correct. Because it seems like from what we know about them, they are putting pressure on Shallan's family. Yep. And then uh, only one other note. Shallan killed her father. Yeah, let's talk about that. A foul and most unnatural murder. That you predicted. I did. 
Oh, my prophetic soul. <laughs> you did predict that quite some time ago. Leave her to heaven, I say. So chapter 71 is called Recorded in Blood. Seth Sonson Villano, truthless of Shinovar, is on his way to kill King Taravangian of Carbaranth. His orders are to tell the king that the others are dead before killing him. To his surprise, Taravangian knows his name. And oh, he also has Seth's oath stone. He has been Seth's secret new master all along. Son of a bitch. Seth is pretty bitter and angry at this point, and he accuses Taravangian of sitting pretty while Seth does all the dirty work. In response, Taravangian shows him his fucking murder room hidden in the middle of his palace. Yup, the kindly old king has a secret room under the hospital where a team of his healers is draining the life from dozens of people at a time in order to record their dying words. Taravangian believes the end is coming and that his actions will save the world. He sends Seth out to kill someone else, someone who cannot be allowed to seize control. That someone is Dalinar Colon, and Seth is ordered to kill him brutally. Now this chapter is like, damn, right? All right. So here's me at the beginning of the chapter. No, don't kill Taravangian. Here's me at the end of the chapter. Stab that bastard. Kill him. Kill him. (laughs) Did you think at all? Because the first time I read this, I was like, oh, Yasna's there. She's going to save him. Oh. I thought, oh, there's going to be a showdown. No, that didn't cross my mind. Between Yasna and Seth. And And then a complete left turn. Something completely unexpected happened instead. Oh, yeah. I didn't think that was going to happen. It did cross my mind that I thought maybe after this chapter they would sort of run into each other, but we find out later that Yasna and Shalon are leaving. Right. So, um, no, that part didn't cross my mind. I did when he, when Seth says the phrase that he is told to tell Taravangian, the... The others are dead. The others are dead. I thought at that point, I and I kind of suspected there was something weird with Taravangian, but I never thought it would be this. Right. Um, if anything, I thought it was going to go the other way. I thought he was going to be some like secret benefactor, but I guess that's just because he was sort of like a benefactor of the mm-hmm. hot, you know. Um, anyway, when he said those words, I thought, well, Taravangian somehow embroiled in this somehow. Right. Because that's not something you say to somebody who doesn't, right, isn't involved in some way. But I did not expect it to go that direction. So then we have a situation where we're presented with Taravangian as being the person who's been ordering all of these murders, right? Mm-hmm. And so Seth asks him, Why are you doing it? And a couple of things happen here. One, he says, I did it for stability. Right. And Seth rightly asks or thinks, I forget if he asks or or if it's just in his head, how is killing the most powerful people in Roshar going to add to stability? And I'm sort of of the same mindset. But then Taravangian goes down this road. He's like, something's coming. You You know, he starts kind of, 
getting in his Bond villain sort of way and talking about, you know, how he wants to rock the powerful institutions and so that when the storm comes, the walls will be stronger, you know, and you think, is this guy have some really twisted, weird vision? Is this, could we potentially, in its most generous interpretation, call what he's doing simply questionable? And then he says, let me show you my murder room. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and then he, he takes it a step further because that's when, you know, then he starts to explain that, okay, I'm doing this because there's something happening. Something's coming. I need to know what's happening. There's something on the door between death. These people are telling us that something's coming. And I'm like, well, again, if this was like some sort of hospice and all these people were going to die anyway. That's one thing. And it's most generous interpretation. You could call that fucked up. But no, he takes it a step further. He's like, well, sometimes we don't have, quote, enough, unquote, people. So we have to go find some random homeless people. And some lowlifes, you know, sailors and people like that, you know, people who have families and children, but, you know, don't really contribute anything. And we have to kill them, too, for some imaginary quota, making it 100% clear that this guy is evil as shit. It's interesting. And I think I just think Brandor does this so well. This this bad guy who truly believes he's doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, he's got a completely twisted way of going about it, but he really, really believes that what he's doing is saving the world. I don't know. I mean, I definitely agree that he thinks he's doing the right thing. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, I do agree with that. He says it multiple times. I'm the monster who's going to save the world. Uh, So it's like, it's not as though he doesn't recognize that what he's doing is monstrous. He just thinks it's a sacrifice that has to be made. Right. But I don't understand how you can make any argument that killing Dalinar to stop him from uniting the Alethi is going to somehow lead to greater stability. Yeah, that's something that's not explained in this chapter for sure. I don't comprehend that at all. So another thing I noted about Seth is in the beginning of the chapter, Seth is not, his directions are, his instructions are, he's not supposed to kill anyone. But he gets to those guards and he fucks them up. Yeah, he does. He doesn't kill them. Well, well, this is what I thought was interesting. Teravangian asks him specifically, did you kill them? And he says, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did not deliberately tried to kill them, but he was not particularly careful. Right. I mean, he could have killed them outright if he wanted to just kill them outright. But when asked if he killed him, he's like, oh, I don't know. Which means I think that Seth is just continuing to unravel. Seth is cracking, dude. He is definitely on the downward spiral. You know, on the way up to performing this murder he he thinks about the fact that he's started blaming his victims now yeah for being too weak to kill him and he is just just past the point 
of of sanity for sure. And then he says, he has this moment where he says, I could stop him. I could end this. But then he says, but honor prevailed. Honor? Honor is the thing that stays your hand? So again, we have this character who's, this is his moral compass. His true north is doing what his master says. That is the only thing that's keeping him tethered yeah. at this point. And it's very interesting to watch even that start unravel. And I noticed as he's walking, you know, he, he cuts his way down through the privy. And as he's walking, he thinks about how he's lost his reverence for stone. And that yeah. once it would have been difficult for him to even walk on stone. And now he's slicing it up with a shard blade and it doesn't even bother him. So he he definitely is all of all of his moral guidings, everything that was guiding his morality is just just crumbling. And this is the last thing that's holding him together is that I'm truthless. I do what my master says. But that's an interesting moment for Seth. I thought it was interesting too. Teravangian mentions, and he's talking about how the dying see something, mm-hmm. that it started seven years ago when King Gavilar was investigating the shattered plains for the first time. Yep. So that's kind of interesting. It is. So I had, so another thing I, I forgot when I was talking about Dalinar and does it make sense to kill Dalinar in the spirit of trying to create stability. So if Dalinar's visions are true and if the Radiance visions, if the visions of the Radiance are true and they come from the Almighty and the Radiance are a good thing, then what we have seen is that a strong, united Alethkar under a wise leader could be a very positive force in fighting off the desolations. Teravangian says he's doing this to stop the desolations, but those two things can't be true together. Teravangian could be just completely misguided, and obviously he is misguided. But it's strange to me that he would go after Dalinar specifically if he is actually acting for the good of the nation. I don't think, even in his mind, I don't think he is. I think Teravangian might be working for the other team. Interesting. We, It's obvious that we are going to be getting a lot more Teravangian in the future. They're setting, obvious here, they're setting him up to, to be more of a player than you originally thought. So definitely more will be revealed about this character. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now I have a question for you. Okay. Whose cause is less noble? T-Pain, my boy T-Pain, killing innocents, in order to try to figure out what's coming and at least in his mind save the world. Or Sadius, who runs bridge crews right over a chasm, out there to die deliberately, all in pursuit of gem hearts. So I would say that Teravangian is more noble because he is at least working to save other people's lives. Sadius, he's pretty much about himself. Now, if you want to talk about who is more moral or ethical, 
I might say Sadius, because Sadius at least sticks to his moral code. He's True. not, as far as Sadius is concerned, nothing that Sadius does is wrong, because what's right for Sadius is whatever is best for him, <laughs> and that's what he's doing. So he is the most, uh, he sticks to his his eth- code of ethics the most. Teravangian is acting against his moral code for what he believes is a greater good. So that's a very good question. I like it. I by the, And by the way, I agree with you 100%. That would be how I would have answered that as well. And then I have my last note here. So Teravangian is the monster who's going to save the world. But can you kill people to protect people? Can you? I feel like that's been asked. I feel like somebody else has brought that up. <laughs> At least once. Or five times. Speaking of which, I thought we were going to a Kaladin chapter, but I looked down and I see that's not we're not we're not going to a Kaladin we're not chapter. Going to a no, we get to say verse Italian again. Verist Italian. The chapter seventy two is called Verist Italian. Did I say that right? Sure, I think I did. The truthful Italian, the- a true Italian, would name her daughter Mary. <laughs> In this chapter, Gazna finally reveals to Shallan the truth behind her mysterious research. She believes that the Voidbringers had a natural, real-world correlate. Shallan reviews Yasna's notes and comes to the same conclusion that Yasna did. The Parshmen are the Voidbringers. <laughs> You're shaking your head. We don't need no education. We don't need no Verist Italian thought control. So what's going to happen with those Parshmen? Man, I don't know. I mean, according to the evidence that's laid out here, it seems pretty clear. Voidbringers were creatures, real creatures of rock and flame, the Parshendi, marbled black and red, that were calm, the Parshmen, but became violent, the Parshendi, and there's music when they kill. Like, mm-hmm. seem according to whatever it is they're reading, seems very clear that all roads lead to Parshendi. Right. Right. She also says, the Voidbringers were never really defeated because we humans never truly get rid of something we can use. Mm -hmm. So we were happy to simply enslave them as our servants in some sort of eternal punishment, but then we forgot who they actually were. That's the suspicion. Look, it's just a theory, man. It's just a theory. The only other thing I noted in here is that they talk about blood, and how blood is not the same as food. It It's much less complicated. It's also one of the, the 10, I think they said 10. Essences, yes. Essences. But it's interesting that that's how that chapter begins. And it's coming from Teravangian's murder room. Yes. Where they're draining people of blood. Right. And Teravangian just sort of like dismissively is like, well, we don't need the blood. Right. It's the words we're after. But again, the juxtaposition of Mm -hmm. one at the end of a chapter and the next one at the beginning of a chapter tells me that that's not true. That's an interesting point. I hadn't picked up on that. And I think it's one of the first things that Shallan says. 
she at the very opening is saying, okay, before I read these notes, explain to me what you did with my blood. You soul cast Correct. it. And why is it that you were able to, you couldn't soul cast the jam, but you could soul cast my blood. Correct. And Yasna explains that there are 10. So 10 is the number on Roshar. It's the magic number. It's there's 10 heralds, mm-hmm. 10 orders of the Knights Radiant. There are 10 essences that are very easy to soul cast. Mm-hmm. So it's like smoke. I, there's a chart in the back. If you want to check it out, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, that that list and each essence has a correlate uh, in the other categories as well. So, and a, and a personality correlate as well. So that's kind of cool. And I thought it was interesting that they, then they talk about well, how do the ardents, are, are, are all Fabrials just jokes? And she says, no, no, as far as I know, we're the only ones who can do this. The ardents all use, actually use Fabrials yeah. to soul cast. Mm-hmm. And then this is the chapter where we find out that Yasna doesn't actually see the symbol heads, but she reveals that they're a type of spren and that they're related to what Shalon can do. Well, does she say that she can't see him? She so Shalon asks, and then Yasna says they're a type of spren. She never says I can't see them. No, well, no, she says you see creatures like this. She does, yeah. But she also could have been saying you see creatures like this. Well, then she says kind of to herself i had she says there are two orders of the knights radiant that have inherent soul casting ability i had assumed and then she kind of breaks off yeah i didn't know what that was in reference to so in your mind she's well and you've read it so i'm assuming that that means yasna can't see them um but you're thinking then is that what she was trying to go down the road of is saying, well, I'm assuming since you can see them, that puts you in one or the other of these camps, right? Right. Um, Which is an interesting observation because it seems to me like we have two characters in the present day who can use Stormlight in a similar fashion, Kaladin and Seth. One is tied to a Spren. The other somehow seems to be tied to a Shard Blade. They work largely in this, well, they have what appears to be relatively similar skill sets, potentially, but arrived at in different ways. And it's so interesting to see, especially in this last chapter, Seth's abilities described in light of the struggle that we saw Kaladin go through to kind of scramble and figure these things out. That's just kind of a side note. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So now it's going to be interesting to watch Shalon. I guess I guess she's going to learn soul casting from Yasna and find out if she has any other abilities. We don't know. Well, we know she's got a shard blade. She does have that. Yeah, that's not really like officially been well, said, but it's about as uh, it's very strongly str- hinted very at. I mean, strongly hinted a at. secret hidden ten heartbeats away. That's uh, hard yeah, to yeah, I mean, think what else that would be. Yeah, they're not really trying to hide that from us. But interesting that she hasn't asked Yasna about it or talked to her about that. Um, but it's that's see, it seems there's a there's an even deeper secret going on with Shalon. Well, I think Shalon is incredibly shameful about what happened there. Right. And we don't, we know that she killed her father 
We know that it's tied to a shard blade. We don't know that it was done on purpose. I suspect it was to protect one of her brothers, but it may not have been that she cut him with a shard blade, and I suspect not because there was all that thing with the blood. So I'm suspecting she cut something accidentally that fell on him, and she's blaming herself for it. But yeah, we don't throw away something we can use. Love that. Yeah. I thought the the discussion that they had about science and religion, I don't agree with her point, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting point. I think it's also interesting for, I think it's, it's interesting to me that Brandon Sanderson would approach who is uh, we know is a very religious person has a character who's kind of coming at it from the other direction he treats it very respectfully yes and very even-handedly so i think that's kudos to mr sanderson good job brandor chapter 73 is called trust kaladin is enjoying a nice mellow brood pondering whether or not he can trust dalinar He's interrupted by the man himself. Dalinar has offered all of the bridgemen a choice, freedom and a purse of money, or a position in his army as a soldier. He makes Kaladin and Bridge Four a different offer. He wants them to serve as personal bodyguards to his family. Kaladin agrees, but he insists on full autonomy for himself and his men. Dalinar makes him a captain. He's now in charge of over 1,000 former bridgemen. Kaladin heads back to the barracks, where Bridge 4 is chilling around Rock's stew pot. Kaladin accepts their offer to help him, to explore his new powers, and he relaxes, knowing that for now they are safe. So many feels in this chapter. It was a set. This is the most denouement chapter. Yes. Yeah, Kaladin's storyline, I feel like, comes to the most sort of satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Which he is sort of the main, I mean, he is the main emphasis of this book. Yes. I don't know if that means that in other books we'll have other characters be more heavily emphasized. Yes. I, okay. I'm sorry. That's not a spoiler, I think. To no, I don't that. think it's a spoiler. But yeah, this this is, he's clearly, you know, lead role. Dalinar and Shallan are also major characters, not quite to the same degree that Kaladin is. I, I feel like each book gets like, flashbacks like one character gets mm. flashbacks where their backstory gets filled in and this is the kaladin book yeah this is this one's kaladin's book and so kaladin's you know in the beginning of this chapter he's kind of brooding over the some of the same kind of questions he had but it's not in the same angsty way that he was before he, he does finally kind of end up He's going back and forth like, oh, warriors do this, but I don't do that. And I don't actually like killing the Parshendi. And then he comes to the conclusion that he was just never very good at doing what a warrior should. That's because he's a knight. Ah, okay. I think. But knights were dicks. Real knights (laughs) in the Middle Ages were dicks. On earth, but this is Roshar. Not all of them. So I like the interaction between him and Dalinar where uh, Dalinar says, why did you and your bridge crew come for us? And he says, why did you give up your shard blade? Yeah. And he's def- so he's definitely coming to respect Dalinar. And I really liked what he said 
when he said, would any man trade a shard blade to keep up appearances? And at that point, is it even an appearance anymore? No. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was yeah. thinking about Amram and another, uh, you know, he looked good on the outside. He talked the talk. He let the lowly dark eyes into his nice camp or whatever. But, you know, in the end, he was for himself. But then, he, you know, when he's thinking about what Amram did to get a shard blade versus what Dalinar was willing to give up in oh order God, to yeah. satisfy his honor. I mean, the only way that's a show and an appearance is if he's got two other shard blades in his back pocket he's right. not telling anybody right. about, you know? Uh, you know, and we've been in Dalinar's head enough to know that's not what's going on, but... I thought it was interesting when Dalinar says, well, you know, it's been good. It's been fun. I'm see you've been well taken care of. Get plenty of rest. True desolation comes. I mean, uh, <laughs> dinner's dinner's about ready. Sorry. I see, I see desolations. Oh, silly me. Go get some sleep. <laughs> we never had this conversation. <laughs> right. Kellen's like, what? What was that you said? The last. Can you go back? What dinner? Bodyguard? No, in between those two. I don't. I don't recall. <laughs> sort of slips that in there. So Dalinar wants Kaladin to train the Bridgemen to be soldiers, but also for Bridge Four specifically to be the personal bodyguard of Dalin uh, and his family. Yes. I also thought it was interesting that Dalinar had his surgeons see to the bridgemen before his own soldiers, which in modern militaries and modern leadership, that's often a common thing to do is for officers to put the needs of non-commissioned officers, lower level officers ahead of their own, and for those officers to put the needs of the people below them ahead of their own and so on and so forth. But not generally in the case of surgery where medical necessity should dictate what happens. But still, it's an interesting demonstration yeah. of his leadership and, and what he values. Two other things I have in here that we haven't brought up yet. So first is Sill. Yes. Doesn't like the shard blade Feels much better about Dalinar yes. now that he's given up, but but that's not even really the point. They're talking about the battlefield, and she says, well, I had to leave the, all the killing hurt me, which I just find a little bit strange. It's not a major issue, but because she's an honor spren, and we have seen multiple times where in the height of killing frenzy, honor spren show up. So it's interesting that she has a different take on that. Is it because of her awareness or am it's, I misunderstanding the way honor spren appear? No, I, I think that's an interesting point. And I think it has something to do with the fact that Kaladin himself was pretty torn about whether killing the Parshendi is the right thing to do. Because as he's on the battlefield, he's noticing that they are fighting in a much more honorable way than the Alethi are. Yeah. You know, they come at him in pairs, groups of two to four. They don't attack 
people who are obviously non-combatants, like none of them attacked Lopin when all he was doing was tossing Kaladin new spears, yeah, that kind of thing. Kaladin really is questioning this to the point where he tells Dalinar that he doesn't want his bridgemen, his new spear company, to be sent to the lines for at least a year because he's not sure how he feels about killing the Parshendi. And he kind of goes back and forth saying, you know, they were... It was the right thing to do. If if I had not saved Dalinar, I would have allowed Sadius to to perpetrate this horrible betrayal. But at the same time, I killed the Parshendi who think they're doing the right thing as well. And they've treated me more honorably than most of the people in my own army. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's Syl's reaction is probably tied to that. That makes sense. Kaladin also goes through this period of sort of regret about stabbing the Parshendi shard bearer yes. in the back of the leg, which I personally think is ludicrous because I understand where he's coming from, but at the same point in time, war is not dueling. Yeah. And as much as we have said before that, the life of a Dalinar colon is not worth more than the life of a Bridgman. However, from the from the perspective of being an organization which whose goal is to survive or achieve strategic objectives, the guys at the top have a much greater weight from a strategic ability from an organizational standpoint. And getting him, you know, if Dalinar had died there, what would that have meant for the lives of? everybody else that did survive that day. Yeah, it's an interesting quandary that Kaladin's facing. And it's interesting to see his development as a character that he wrestles with these questions, but ultimately kind of lets them go. He wrestles with them, but he doesn't beat himself up that he doesn't have all the answers. It's also interesting that we're having this debate about what is an honorable way to kill people on a battlefield. Yes. It's not a question of whether or not people die. Right. It's a question question of, is it better to get stabbed in the front of the throat or the back of the throat? Right. Or the back of the knee. I mean, that's better. We'll all agree. I think, yeah, I think. If you're going to stab me, honey, do it in the back of the knee. I promise you I won't. Can we talk about Bridge Four? Like the way that they just accept Kaladin's abilities and they offer to help. That whole last scene is just so like touching. I, I loved it. Can you fly? How okay. strong are you? Yeah. <laughs> How fast are you? When you come, does blue stuff come out? Sizzle's <laughs> like, if I came blue, all the girls would want to kiss me. Lopen or Lopen, the I'm Lopen, sorry. Lopen yeah. yeah, the Lopen. <laughs> That's my favorite quote from this chapter. I see that you can glow. I think that you should kiss me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Sigzel wants to slide up next to Kaladin with like a blood pressure cuff and a slide yeah. ruler. Put him on a treadmill and be like, "All right, let's run through it's a like, series of tests." Don't you think we should have? Don't you think we should figure that out? Yeah. And Moash just wants to learn how to do it himself. Yeah, yeah. And Rock just wants to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> that part was so great. Yeah. Let's just throw him off a cliff. Not a tall one. <laughs> Nothing will bring out your hidden abilities more than being thrown, thrown off, off a, a cliff. cliff. <laughs> That's what I did with our three-year-old. Just threw her off a cliff. 
Now she has her own Venezuelan country. Exactly. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. So, yeah, there was a lot of little humor towards the end. I liked Kaladin threatening to stick rock to the ceiling while he's sleeping, that kind of thing. Also, dude, we need to mention the fact that Shen is a void bringer. Well, is he? Well, if the Parshmen are the void bringers. Well, but are they? I'm just saying if they are, then Shen's one too. Well, my first note in the next chapter is about that. So let's, if, well, if you One ready. more thing. Yeah, yeah, one more thing. Because we're talking about um, these characters with no abilities and the Knights Radiant, all that kind of thing. And Teft in this chapter makes sure he mentions that Kaladin is not a Knight Radiant yet. Not yet. So he's spoken two ideals, I guess. Hold your shard pants. Hold your shard pants. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, that's funny. All right. Keep your britches on. <laughs> your shard britches. Don't shard your pants. <laughs> that's when you think you're going to fart, <laughs> but you instead take a shit in a Ford. Shard. <laughs> so, chapter 74 is called Ghost Blood. In this chapter, a bunch of eighth graders starts a Metallica cover band. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Ride the Ghost Blood. Ride the High Storm. <laughs> if we start a band, we're naming it Ghost Blood. That's right, yeah. Master of Parchments is pulling your strings. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Okay. In this chapter, Shalana and Yasna discuss the implications of the, sh- of the Parchment being the Voidbringers. Spoiler, it's bad. The Parchment are integrated into every part of Alethi society. Yasna asks for Shalan's full allegiance in her efforts to prove these suspicions and prevent another desolation. Shalan agrees, and Yasna tells her that the next step is to head to the Shattered Plains before any of the other groups who are looking for the same information get there first. One of these groups is called the Ghost Bloods, and it turns out that Capsule had their symbol tattooed on his arm. Can you guess where else Shalan has seen this symbol? Yup. It's the same symbol worn by her father's steward, Luash. It would seem her family has ties to this organization as well. So, damn, just think about what that means if the parchment are the void bringers. Like Yasna says to Shalon, they're responsible for preparing our food. They watch our children. They, they're they working our elevator as we speak, you know. Imagine if every single one of them all of a sudden gets extremely violent. Be bad for the Alethi. It would be bad. It would be bad for everyone in Roshar. Because that is that it's not just through Alethkar, it's through the entirety of Roshar, right? Yes, the parchment are through all of Roshar. Which makes sense. Right. All right, so what Shalon and Yasna are saying makes sense. It makes sense narratively, you know, what they're what they're espousing as an idea about the Voidbringers. I mean, they seem to have some historical evidence for it. All these things seem to line up. But then we also have the experience that we've just had with seeing the Parshendi out on the Shattered Plains, Kaladin's experience with them, 
coming to the conclusion that they are more honorable than the Alethi in the way that they fight. Also, the Parshendi don't seem to be like like wild, savage monsters no. either. Exactly. They're showing restraint in combat. Also, I think I don't have a whole lot to base this off of, but I get the impression that the whole Alethi idea that they're like, that they have the Parshendi like cornered and, you know, and they're ready to wipe them out, I think is complete hogwash. I think the Parshendi really could wipe the Alethi off the Shattered Plains if they wanted to. They demonstrate this restraint. So again, we, I mean, it was six years ago, they were sitting in a, in a hall drinking together. They didn't kill Gavilar because they went wild. They came to a table. They had a discussion. So I see the logical consistency in what they're saying if you only are looking at it from that perspective. But then when I look at what I see in Dalinar and Kaladin's storylines, I see some incongruity. I have to ask, can both these things be true? So the answer is only one of two things in my mind. Either it's not true and... Shalon and Yasna are drawing the wrong conclusion. And there could potentially be some evidence to show that because we've seen all kinds of other creatures that are overtly aggressive. Uh, the ones that Dalinar saw in his vision, his first vision, the thunder, 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 thunder clasts, mm-hmm. and also the 40 story tall chasm fiends, right? So. It could potentially be that they're drawing the wrong conclusion. The other potential thing could be they're accurate, and and this is probably what I think it is, that they're accurate, but it's not that the Parshendi are necessarily evil. It's that they're being there's something controlling them. Or if they go into this homicidal rage throughout the entirety of Roshar, it won't be because they they're bad dudes and they just want to stab babies. It's going to be because odium reigns and somebody has found a way to control them and flip a switch. Mm, yeah. I see your thinking. So I like how you say, I see your thinking you're wrong, but I see how you came to that conclusion. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to, to look at. I've got this experience with the Parshendi that tells me one thing, not that they're like cool guys I want to go play spades with, right. but like <laughs> but like they may not be the evil evil bastards that we think they are. Right. But then when we come to that conclusion, we have Shalon and Yasna saying, "Oh my god, they're the Voidbringers." Right. Maybe Voidbringers doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe. Maybe, like, void is Parshendi for, like, a really nice kind of dip. Could be. And we're bringing this dip to your party. (laughs) You bastards don't have chips. I'm killing your king. (laughs) That's what happened. Somebody double dipped in the void. I mean, I, I personally have never double dipped in the void. But in college, a few of my friends did. They put it in the void. I told them not to. And then they put it in the void again. 
I feel like this is going somewhere. This is not about food did anymore. Did not start. <laughs> it's no longer about food. <laughs> so from a character standpoint, I thought it was interesting that Shalon ended up choosing Yasna's mission over saving her brothers. You know, and she says, well, first off, it's interesting that Yasna gives her an out after she's told her all of this, after yeah. Shalon knows her secret. She says she offers to let her go back to her home. And she says, you know, I won't have you thinking of ways to escape. Like if if you're in this, you're in this. And Shalon says, I mean, my family really needs me, but this is more important. And she says, I'll think of another way to help my brothers. And Yasna doesn't offer to help her. Not at all. And Shalon doesn't ask her to. Nope. So I thought that, that that's just interesting, you know? I think it shows that Yasna is probably closer to the edge of, like, just sheerly losing it than maybe she seems. She definitely seems wholly obsessed. Yes. Now, I'm not coming at that from a negative standpoint. If you think you've found what's going to destroy the world... Right around the corner. I mean, that's not a bad thing to be obsessed you, you about, might, I guess. might be obsessed. But she does seem obsessed. Although, the other interesting thing here is that we have Yasna and Shalon going to the Shattered Plains where we have our other two main characters. So it seems like yeah. the storyline's at least geographically condensing. So that's exciting. I also I have a suspicion that this is just one piece of this whole story and that we're going to find out a lot more about what's happening on the western side of the continent in the next book or two. Well, we'll find out in the next book or two. We will. We? I feel like there's more going on in the west than we uh than we realize. So, Yasna and Shalon talk about the ghost bloods. Yasna says, we're not the only ones looking for this information. The ghost bloods are looking for the information as well. And, oh yeah, by the way, they're the people who tried to assassinate me. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, if they're all looking for the same information, and the information is about the desolation and the void bringers, because we want to unearth this so we can do something about it, why would there be competition and people trying to kill each other? That's a very good question. So it seems to me that the Ghostbloods are not trying to reveal this information so people can prepare for it. Seems to me like they're trying to keep it hidden. It's a very good speculation. Nothing else I can say about that at this juncture. We shall talk at a different juncture. Indeed, we will. That juncture over there. <laughs> you want to go to that juncture? Maybe later. I'm not hungry right now. Okay, so chapter 75 is called In the Top Room. Dalinar experiences a repeat of the first vision he ever had. He sees his home city of Kolinar destroyed. He talks face-to-face -face with the mysterious author of the visions. Dalinar realizes at this time that this figure has never actually been able to hear him. 
Instead, Dalinar seems to have been watching some sort of immersive VR diary. All of the figure's cryptic answers suddenly make sense. He was never responding to Dalinar at all, and he certainly never told him to trust Sadius. The vision shows Dalinar the true desolation, all of Roshar utterly destroyed, the sun and planets wiped out one by one. The vision figure tells us that the only hope is for the Knights Radiant to stand again. He also tells us that he is the Almighty, creator of mankind, and that he is dead. Odium has killed him. Dude, that sucks. So, yeah, that sucks. That's not good? No. No, that ain't good. That ain't good. So we find out in this chapter that God is a number station. A number station. So number stations are these places that just repeat strings of numbers. These weird radio signals that just, they're just out there. And if you randomly stumble across them, they're just repeating strings of information. I did not know that was a thing. Oh, it's a thing, yeah. It's a thing. Yeah. I, and I'm not going to... I learned something. I'm not going to get all into number stations. There's right. all kinds of stuff you could go down. But the idea that it's just like this random thing that's playing on, it's, you know, it's uh, save us Obi-Wan Kenobi, but just randomly out somewhere in right. some weird mystical place, you know? Um well, in the high storms. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah, inside the inside the high storms. Yeah. So that was weird. Yeah. That's weird. So he says cultivation is better at seeing the future. So capital cult- C. Capital C. So she's a future farmer, like the future farmers of Roshar. <laughs> but instead of farming Talu, they farm the future. You think I'm making a joke. I I am not sure not, if you're making a joke. I am not making a joke. That Good. is a legitimate observation. <laughs> Future farmers of Roshar file it away. He also says, return to men the shards they once bore. So the dawn shards? That's interesting because, okay, so so the Almighty kind of at the very end sort of puts out this list of instructions, and that is one of the last thing he talks about. Well, first off, he says someone, basically, you've got to come together. Someone has to lead them. Someone has to unite them all. You can't be squabbling, all that kind of stuff. And then because he says that Odium has realized that you in time will become your own enemies. So then he says, and I think this is a very interesting statement, you might be able to get him to choose a champion. He is bound by some rules. All of us are. A champion could work well for you, but without the Dawn Shards, I don't know. And that's when he's like, I wish I could do more. By the way, I'm God. Peace out. See ya. By the way, I'm God. I'm dead. Please be kind. Rewind. So if God is dead, then what does it mean to pray? So Navani's words talk about prayer and prayer being creation. Do Navani's words suggest that God can be restored through creation and prayer? Oh, I like that. 
I like that thought. If it does, then that would indicate that the shin are correct and that the farmers and the painters are more important to this war than the warriors. Well, and think about what happened right after Navani painted a giant ass justice glyph. Well, a prayer, a prayer for justice. Really nothing yet. Well, like right when she, after she did that, they turned around and there was Dalinar. Oh, that's true. Okay. Marching in to get some justice. I see what you're saying. Okay. See what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. Yeah. And we also saw uh, what happened with Kaladin after he went and got um, a prayer sewn onto his sleeve. Was was uh, his miraculous survival in the battle. Correct. Yeah. And the things that he had had prayed for. Also, the Shin value creators and creation. And they are the only ones living in a world that's not covered in shit. Covered in creme. Yeah. They have a completely different value system. They're also the furthest away from the origin of the High Storms. True. So I also thought it was significant that the Almighty says it's not just about you either. So this is affecting other worlds. Yeah, we go through this sort of place where Dalinar is having this vision where the planet is essentially crumbling out from beneath him. And as you say, we stand kind of on this precipice looking out into the sky and you see other lights, stars, other planets in the Cosmere blinking out. Yeah, it's like some never-ending story shit going on at the end it here. It is. It is, for sure. It's the nothing. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, too. So the Almighty is deaf and blind and cannot see Dalinar. Yeah, he doesn't know. So basically, this is this this whole mess is like a message in a bottle kind of set out. He doesn't know who's going to get it. He's not there anymore. This is just sort of a recording. Yep. So Dalinar says to him in his early vision, should I trust Sadius? And the vision says, yes, trust to honor. If I went back and I read that section through, Assuming that it's accurate, what we read here, right? That this is just a vision, you know, just a recording that's playing. Right. It's a number stage, string of numbers. It's not interacting with anything at all. If you read through it, not taking any of Dalinar's stuff into consideration, then it doesn't make sense. This, the random word yes thrown in there arriving right after he says, should I trust Sadius? The, that, that word does not make sense in the context of what else is being said. So to me, it makes sense. But let me read it. Listeners, you can decide if it makes sense to you. I think it depends on how you say the word yes. Whether you're saying it as an answer to a question or just sort of a yes, 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 or like yes, yes, kind of a affirmation of your own thoughts. So the way I'm reading this guy, this 
video diary, for lack of a better word. He's just kind of talking to himself. He's dying. So this is something that is coming out of a dying mind. Um, The way I envision it is the Almighty had like moments left, seconds left, and he just kind of somehow put part of his mind, his memories, threw it into whatever magic is contained in the high storm and Mm -hmm. then died. So he's just kind of, parts of him are probably rambling, these messages. So if he says, they were one once, the orders, men, not without problems or strife, of course, but focused. I wish I could help you. You have to unite them. To speak of what might be is forbidden. To speak of what was depends on perspective, but I will try to help. Yes, this is important. Do not let strife consume you. Be strong. Act with honor and honor will aid you. So Uh, to me, that reads like a coherent statement. I don't think it does. The whole question through the whole middle two-thirds of this book is, is Sadius trustworthy? And the only reason why you think that he might be is because of that single word. Well, I disagree with that as well. Because we also see him working with Dalinar to preserve Elokar's kingdom. We do. We also see him being a real dick anytime he's not directly in front of Dalinar, however. Absolutely. So we know he's manipulative, but there are other reasons that we have to think that Sadius might be trustworthy. To me, that single word, yes, was the tiebreaker. Every time I thought, is this guy going to do something ridiculous? Is he going to betray Downer? It always came back to that word, yes. Well, yeah, I think that's it's absolutely meant to be the tiebreaker. I do too. I think it's absolutely meant to be the tiebreaker. And I don't think it sounds natural at all. It's not as though this was somebody who was using those sorts of phrases in their rambling thing. They weren't, he wasn't speaking in that fashion. And then I, I, um, it seems to, so that to me has been the one part of this book so far that I'm not happy with. Really? Interesting. Yeah, that seems to me a little bit like a cheap shot. It it did not bother me at all. To me, when I went back and read it through, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could see why, like, he was just kind of saying yes to himself. Mm, I don't think so. I don't, or, I don't. Or kind of, you know, like, coming to a decision about what he was going to say next. And But he doesn't really do that in any other part. You know, I honestly, I haven't gone through all of the dialogue for all of the parts. So it just, I guess it didn't bother me enough that I felt like I needed to analyze it to that level. I mean, there are other pieces of evidence where Dalinar is in there and he's saying something random and Dalinar's like, what are you, that's not what I, you know, like. Right. So there are some other things in there that give that credence, but that one word and the way it comes across, it's so critical to setting up your expectations, which then get betrayed, that I didn't like that when I realized that that's what our whole, I mean, 
everything that was awesome about the last section to me gets a little bit cheapened by that one word. So, I mean, I obviously I accept your that's your opinion. Um, it, it did not bother me the same. And I guess for me, I feel that Dalinar would have done what he had done, even if he hadn't felt like the visions were telling him to trust Sadius. I felt like like Sadius had sufficiently manipulated Dalinar at that point by asking to listen to the way of kings, by just the things that he was doing and saying, by going on the... And at that point, Dalinar was so desperate for someone to go on these joint plateau runs, and they had been on several already. There's no question for me that Dalinar still would have gone into that last battle with Sadius, even without that one word from the Almighty. I don't doubt that either, but to me, it's not so much about what Dalinar would do. It's about the expectation that was built up over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages leading us up to what was clearly meant to be the hook of this book. And I think the foundation that it's laying on is cracked. I just don't read that the same way at all. It's still an enjoyable book. Like, I'm not I'm not trying to say that that one word has like ruined the book for me, but it is frustrating. And I do think that that's a cheap way of explaining why he felt like he was misled by the almighty. So for me, I found it very satisfying because it felt like, like you said, leading up to this point, it felt like, Oh, he, the almighty is just being cryptic for cryptic sake. And to me, that was just a great explanation that Dalinar was reading meanings into things that, that weren't even there. Maybe when I sleep on it a little bit more, I'll have a different opinion. So, well, let me say one more thing about this point, and then mm-hmm. we can move on. We don't have to go back and forth. No, let's end it on a positive note, because it's a <laughs> it's a good book. It's a positive thing. Let's end it on a positive note. So, I just wrote down the Almighty's part of the dialogue in this chapter. And what sticks out at me is the sentence that he has right before he says the word yes. He has this sentence and then a longer pause than he has for any of the rest of the quote unquote conversation. What he says right before the word yes is to speak of what might be is forbidden to speak of what was depends on perspective. So what I see here is the almighty struggling about what to tell Dalinar or whoever is going to get this message. So he's sharing his memories. He doesn't know who's going to see them or how far in the future it's going to be. He doesn't know what's going to be going on at the time. He's not allowed to talk about the future. Something is forbidden. He says that he's bound by rules, whatever. But to talk about the past depends on who it is that's watching. So the way I see it, he speaks out. He's talking kind of generally I miss those times, you know, they were all one once, and then he then he turns to talk to whoever it is. And he says, you know, I, I don't basically I see him saying, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not allowed to tell you the future. I don't know who you are, so I don't know if telling you about the past is gonna help you. And then you see a longer pause. And I, I see him 
saying yes because he's come to a decision about what advice he's going to give. So he's saying to himself, yes, this is important. Don't let strife consume you. Be strong. Act with honor. That's the way I read it. And that's the best way I can articulate the way that I understand that statement. So chime in, listeners. What do you think? We'll, tr- we'll type it up and put it on the Facebook page. Am I being ludicrous? We should do a... You are being ludicrous, Chad. <laughs> but we'll do a poll to confirm it if you would like. I think we should write it on the website <laughs> and do a point-counterpoint. I think we that would be awesome. Power of we one word. will not promise that <laughs> content. <laughs> we, have, we have not we been able to follow through on content, that. We content, you guys. We, we do our best. But that would be cool if we did that. <laughs> The epilogue is called Of Most Worth. So Wit is just chilling out inside the gates of Kolinar, playing the Enthyr, like you do. Like you do. And with people's minds. But before he can break into Wonderwall, a dude with a massive shard blade busts through the gates. He calls himself Talonel Elin, Stone Sinu, Herald of the Almighty, and he tells them all that the desolation has finally come. He then promptly collapses his shard blade remaining intact. So there's that. It's my boy, Hoyd. Sitting here at the end of the world. And he says, this is one of my favorites, I believe that's the sound the world makes when it pisses itself. (laughs) He seems awfully unfazed by what is about to happen. Well, I think that's just Hoyd, you know? So I love his speech in this. Hoyt is doing what he does, and he's just kind of talking to these guardsmen who are just kind of looking at him in an unsettled manner. And he's he's talking about what is it that you think men value most? I love this. Yeah. And and they're like, I don't know music. Beer? I don't know. <laughs> you know, so he goes on and he talks about, you know, people might say you know, intellect or artistic ability or whatever. But then he says, you know, but if if you have two people invent the same thing, Mm -hmm. independent of each other, who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? It's the one who did it first. And you're like, oh, damn, I never thought of it like that before. But it's true. So he said, I didn't ask what was most valuable. I asked what men value most. And right at that moment, in comes Talonel. Too little too late. Timeliness. Timeliness. Remember that thing back in college? (laughs) We used to eat it all the time. Timeliness. Timeliness. I definitely did not suffer from timeliness in In, college. In college? No, you didn't. No. Or really the following 20 years, if we're being honest with ourselves. (laughs) Throw my pen at you. Now it's getting real, y'all. <laughs> now that is to my to my recollection, <laughs> that's the first time anything on the podcast has been thrown in anger. <laughs> Think things have been tossed haphazardly about. <laughs> Juice boxes have flown. But you did just actually throw your pen at me. <laughs> I didn't throw it hard. No, you didn't. <laughs> That's funny. No, I loved I loved his his speech about timeliness and what we value. I thought that was phenomenal. 
And then until you said it out loud, I didn't really catch the name. Talonel? Talonel, Aline. He's the one. The one that went back. Exactly. Yep. I did not get that. And the... The painting that happens between, I think, chapters 68 and 69 yeah. is of him. Yeah. So he is not the shard bearer. He is not. Reborn from the Parshendi. And that. nor is he, like, when I first read this, I thought for sure Kaladin was going to be him reborn. He is not. I was like, oh, I guess that's not him. No. No, it's, yeah, it's the one guy they fucking left behind. Yep. Man, that poor son of a bitch. Right. <laughs> we tortured for 5,000 years in hell alone. I feel like I'd have, if when I finally got my chance to break free, I'd have, I'd have like pieced out. Nope. Y'all on your own. <laughs> leave, <laughs> leave me here for 5,000 years to suffer. Yep. And then... When you talked about him dropping and dropping his shard blade and it not disappearing, I did not put two and two together. I thought, and my note here is, why didn't the shard blade disappear? I thought it wasn't a regular shard blade. It was a dawn shard. Mm -hmm. Because they have different swords. Mm Mm-hmm. But now I'm thinking it didn't disappear because he died. Could be either of those. Could be either of those possibilities. Hmm. I I'm done. I got, I ain't got anything else to say. All right. Hoyd standing on a crate, playing his little weird harp thing right before the end of the world. Well, I, just real quick, can we talk about the Ketek at the end? Because I absolutely, yeah, absolutely love this. So there's an end note, and you think it's going to be something by the author about, I wrote this in Maine with my dog Chip at my side, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Chip, he was a good boy. <laughs> we had to bury him. <laughs> he wasn't dead. Just kept pissing on my rug. He made fun of my chronic lateness. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Never could find a pen around there. So the end note instead, here's what we get. It says, above silence, the illuminating storms, dying storms, illuminate the silence above. And then it goes on to describe this um, this kind of poem. It's a ketek. It's a complex form of a holy Voran poem. And we know that the Vorans, they revere the symmetry. And so this one reads the same forward and backward, allowing for the alteration of verb forms, but it's also divisible into five distinct smaller sections. Each makes a complete the. I just think that's so cool. Like I how do too, yeah. Intricately. And did you notice that the five lines of the poem are the five names of the sections. No, I did not. I thought that was pretty cool. Damn, that's clever. Well, the very first episode we did of Way of Kings, one of the very first things that we noticed were the palindromes. Yes. And this is a palindrome on a much larger scale, 
on the scale of a poem as opposed to a word. Yes. And so it, the rest of the end note goes on to explain that, well, this is particular Ketek is one of the best ones that a lot of people have ever read. It's completely new. It's, um, But it was uttered by an illiterate dying Herdazian in a language he barely spoke. And then it goes on to explain a little more about that. And then it's it was written by Joshar, head of his majesty's silent gatherers. So those obviously are the people that that Teravangian has slitten wrists in his murder room. Yeah, yeah. And obviously it's I think I just think it's so cool how that all of those quotes of the dying yeah. that we have in several of the sections, now you realize where they came from. Well, what does it tell you though? What does the Catech poem tell you? Well, obviously that the true desolation is coming. I think that's what I, I feel like Teravangian could have stopped at like a dozen, maybe, because it sounds to me like they're all saying the same thing. Uh, like, bad shit's coming. We can't get them to Invest repeat it. Invest in gold bullion. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to need lots of clean drinking water. Get your ammo and your Iodine guns and your tablets. chlorine tablets or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I missed what he said there. Could you go kill another one? Go kill another one. No, that's not what he said. Go kill another one. <laughs> That's not it either. <laughs> Damn, if only we had written that down. That's what, see, he didn't write the first one down. He's just trying to be, to figure out what was that poem that was playing in my head. Go kill, go kill another one until we figure it out. So. It relates to my master theory. Yeah. My master prediction where in episode 74, I'm going to tell you how the series ends. I'm pretty excited to hear that. I have figured out the ending of the Stormlight Archive. That's amazing. Not the next book. Not the third book. The 10th book. The 10th book. That's amazing. And I'm going to tell you in episode 74. Oh, I just realized 10 books probably because 10 is the important number. Son of a bitch. Right? Damn you, Sandor. Gonna make me eat all this fucking chicken. <laughs> all right. Are you ready to So first just just okay. give us overall I, I get we had you had a negative feeling about one of the last chapters, but overall, how are you feeling about the book? Overall, thousand page book, very good. Like not the best one I've ever read. But very good, with one of the better endings ever. I feel like, of all the series I've read, I'd probably put it as my fourth favorite. Oh, all right. Behind A a Song of Ice and Fire, Lord of the Rings, and King Killer Chronicle. Nice. But above the Crystal Cave, above Gentleman Bastards. It's a, it's about there for me, too. Yeah. It's about there for me, too. Yeah. And you haven't even read two and three yet, so I'm really Correct. excited yeah, yeah. to get into those. It has some aspects, and, and we said this about Patrick Rothfuss as well. There are some aspects of Patrick Rothfuss writing that are absolutely superlative the best of any author in the in the genre 
at certain things. Right. And I feel like Brandon Sanderson, same way, different things, different set of things that he excels at. I always said, if we could have a series that was, I'm using really emphatic hand gestures right now, you guys don't even know, that was crafted by Brandon Sanderson. Like he figures out the plot and the magic system, okay? But written by Patrick Rothfuss, he does the prose. Witty banter by Scott Lynch, like, like the world could end then. Yeah, <laughs> it could just end, and I it would be fine because we would have had that. It would be the ultimate series. That's true. That's true. I Not think, like I don't know what you guys are doing, but Brandon, Patrick, get Scott, your shit together. Maybe y'all could have a party. Do some mushrooms. Like, I don't know. Just go from there. I feel like that's not going to happen. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't think Brandon Sanderson's even going to have a cup of coffee with him. <laughs> it's just. We all wrong. know Brandor's the designated driver, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> we love him. Of course. Absolutely. He puts a lot of work in it. Very affectionate to work. I, I I have a lot of affection toward Brandon Sanderson in my brain. Um, do you know he just put out another book, another series? Yeah, I, I a read science that. fiction like a why just like an a one, just like an off, like this, just like a palate cleanser for him. Most people will never write a book <laughs> as good oh, at all, right? Let alone as good as Brandon Sanderson's worst book, <laughs> and he's written like. 40 of them in 10 years. Yeah, it's but crazy. It, it's absurd. It's crazy. I I, op- I opened my Kindle and I was like, is this a joke? Is this like a, <laughs> a gag? I, there's no way. Because I had, I'm just, I wasn't up on it. I did not know this was coming. And it looks good. I'm excited. It's about a girl who finds a semi-sentient spaceship. Like, it's I'm, pretty cool. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. It's groovy. So we are, um, going to wrap up next week uh with it's it'll probably be a little bit shorter episode yeah but um we will be kind of wrapping up this book and then starting the words of radiance also look for we did convince chad to read warbreaker you know he (laughs) he's shaking his head thank you no you have to do it you have to it's so much better if you do it so we will be doing Probably just a one-off episode. You know, Chad usually has now like you a- commit, Now you committed me to it. I could have bailed. No, you are not going to bail. <laughs> the too many people want this from you, Chad. <laughs> you are a, a sucker for public approval, and we're going to use that <laughs> against you. <laughs> you bastards. You figured me out. <laughs> so be looking for, before the end of Words of Radiance- be looking for a, a one-off or maybe two-off. I guess we'll see how it goes. Uh, coverage of Brandon Sanderson's Warbreaker as well. We'll see if I make it to the end. And we will just say that you. It's will. another eight hundred page book. You, you, you will. It's not eight hundred pages. It is. Warbreaker is. It's six, like seven hundred and eighty pages. Top six tops. <laughs> it's tiny. It's minuscule. Read it on the toilet. I mean, Sil couldn't pick it up. <laughs> so that's a three shit book right there. <laughs> what have you been eating? <laughs> I forget where I was going after that. 
Oh, oh, I did want to mention that I believe, is it still going on the Kindle sale of? I think until Wednesday. I, yeah. yeah, I think so, for the next couple of days, you can get the next two books in the Stormlight Archive series for two ninety nine on Kindle if you are a Kindle and person. Nook. And Nook. So, I was very surprised to also find it in Nook. So I bought it. So snap them up. Snap them up. Okay, let's do the listener interactions. All right. So a few hours ago, several hours ago, I put up our our post questions for episode 73. And we got several questions, the first of which came from Daryl Mansell. Daryl Mansell, host, if we haven't heard it, host of the Paprika podcast, series of podcasts, also a really fun series of podcasts. We haven't said that for a while. So if people are just kind of catching up to us in this series, I want to make sure people know. Go check out Paprika. Yeah, check them out. He says, now that you're done, what was your least favorite part? Well, I think we all know. Well, for me. Right. It's a toss-up between that. I'm a little, probably a little sensitive to that right now. Ask me again in a month and I'll have probably gotten over it and be like, ah, it wasn't that big of a deal. A lot of Kaladin's flashbacks were kind of, eh. Like, I got the importance of them but they weren't necessarily fun to read. All the stuff with the the High Lord who moved in and took over and was a real dick, like, and his son died, like, important stuff. I get the importance of it, but that was probably my least favorite part. What about you? You can comment on this. So that's a hard question for me because every time it's been something different. Um, when I first read it, I would say that Shallan's chapters were the hardest to get through because I feel like they had the most descriptions of just things and plants. And I remember feeling just bogged down by the world building. But on subsequent reads, Shallan is one of my favorite perspectives. So I would agree with you that for me, currently, the Kaladin flashbacks, you know, were the least interesting to me. So... Jennifer Shropshire, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, says, what are your burning questions that you hope book two will address? Uh, I mean, I think for me, the the in the beginning, it was, what the hell are spread? Like, and I still don't right. really know what they are. Right. But really, the big one for me is the whole struggle I'm having with the Parshendi. Are they the Voidbringers? Are they evil? Are they... What's the deal with the Parshendi? Like, I keep wanting to try to put them in this misunderstood, not really the bad guys category. And then the book keeps wanting to lead me a little down that road and then slam it shut with, you know, they sing in battle. Ash and fire. Ash and fire. They're clearly the Voidbringers. What's wrong with you? (laughs) So I think to me, that's the biggest one. Yeah, I mean, I can't answer that question, obviously. But, Clearly, yeah. But I, th- I feel like that was my biggest one at the end of my first read through here, as well as like, like Teravangian. Yeah, that's is a, a bad huge guy. Cur- Wait, what? That's a huge curveball. You know, yeah, and yeah. and Seth, you know, what is his deal? What was his whole truthless thing? What? Yeah. We assume it was said something to do with the Voidbringers and them being back, but really, what his deal was and what's going to happen with him. Uh, Katrina says, what was your favorite primary character? Brian McClure also says, 
favorite character overall. Of the main characters, Shallan, Dalinar, and Galadin, my favorite is Shallan. Same. Okay. And then uh, Katrina also says, who's your favorite secondary character and why is it the Lopin? <laughs> She's not wrong. Right. I mean, how could it? How could it not how be could the Lopin? not be the Lopin? <laughs> it's really tough, right? It, it would be tough, yeah. You know. <laughs> Brian McClure says, best quotes from this section. So I I think I mentioned a couple you did. that yeah, I really yeah. liked. My my favorite that always sticks out at me again is just it's always in those interactions with Shalon and Yasna. But when she says, I- "I've made mistakes and I'm going to make more and I need you," and that's what wins her over. That just like, uh, and you know, Kaladin threatening to stick rock to the ceiling and just all the the banter. Throw him off a cliff. Yeah, throw yeah. him off a cliff. Um, between bridge four and that part, that's those are some really great lines there too. My favorite, although it's it's tough to call it a quote because it's a fairly long one, but really is all Wit's whole leading them down the path towards the idea of timeliness. That, yes, that whole what is it that men value most? You know, that whole thing to me is masterful. Yeah, that that I loved. Brian McClure also says, which twist at the end was the most unexpected and which was the most expected? I mean, for me, for me in the overall book, it was Sadius fleeing the battle. Right. And the most obvious was that Kaladin was then going to come to the rescue. Right. Um, f- for the overall book. For this section, clearly it's Teravangian. The most expected, I would say, that Dalinar ends up a captain in his army. I thought he was, and he's going to end up training the army. I, right. Um, I didn't predict him being the the bodyguard, but other than that, I felt like that was fairly obvious. And then Brian also asked, what would be the spren of your Order of Knights Radiant? Life before death, baby. Life spren all the way. Camp life spren. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I feel like my Order of Knights Radiant would be something having to do with order. <laughs> like order spread. <laughs> Is there an order spread? I don't know. An organization spread? Not around here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe in about 10 years there will be. Maybe, maybe. Okay, Brian McClure says, Brandon Sanderson is most known for his ability to make interesting magic systems. While there is still much about the magic system of Stormlight that is yet to be revealed, based on what we've seen so far, would you believe this reputation is well-deserved? Uh, yeah, I would think so. I mean, to me, I've, and I've said this before, that's like a defining characteristic of fantasy, which is my favorite fiction genre, yeah. and yet it's also like, the least important part of fantasy to me. Yeah. So so I probably don't value it as much as other people do, but I recognize it and I do agree that his magic systems are interesting. And for me, that's one of the most important things because for me, that's what makes a story feel very real. Well, and I would think it would be as a fan of fantasy because again, that's like the core element of fantasy that makes it 
right fantasy otherwise it's sci-fi or just speculative fiction it's you know well someone talked about elf porn i feel like when when magic is just magic it's just you know it's not as real i mean i still enjoy it it's like it's cool but if a if a magic system can be broken down and explained in a way that i almost feel like i could do it that's that's what makes it really special for me Mm -hmm. and if there's a chart at the end (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> Eric Allgaier says, do you have the song Rosanna by Toto stuck in your head? Do you? Oh, you don't see me playing my imaginary bass over here, do you? Yes, I do. And and then Eric Al- Allgaier says, follow-up question, how about now? Oh, yeah, for sure now. <laughs> now we all have it. Definitely now. <laughs> I didn't know it could hurt so bad. (laughs) Gordon Ross says, a big theme throughout the book has been the value of study and research. How do you think this compares to other works in this genre? And do you enjoy, and did you enjoy this aspect of this specific story? Yeah. I mean, you, it comes, it's very evident for me that, you know, Brandon Sanderson is a, was a professor you can you can tell he really values higher education. I thought that was pretty cool. I I relate to Shalon more so than any of the other characters. Um, part of that is, you know, how she feels when walking into a library. I think we all feel that way. <laughs> well, and we also read King Killer, which is another one that highly prizes that aspect. I think this compares, you know, favorably in that regard. To me, the concept of a history that's this sort of unreliable history, this idea this is what we believe is happening, but we find out that's not entirely what's happening is really, really the most fast is one of the more fascinating parts of particularly modern fantasy. It's something you see more and more in modern fantasy work. So that's obviously a part of it. Not that that's the only way you can do it. I think George R. R. Martin does it quite well also, but the research aspect isn't as much of a part of it for him. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Susan King says, I feel that the last 10 chapters made the rest of the book worth reading. I know that my biggest surprise was Taravangian, that kindly bumbling simple man. Do you think there's any way that Yasna knows what he is doing? Uh, it, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I yeah. don't see Yasna letting something like that go. Um, I also as think, morally gray as she is, I don't think she would. I also think Tara Vangian does know what she's doing. Yes, I, I, I. It seems like he's he's definitely more than he appears. Yeah, and I have a prediction about that, so I won't get too cool. much more into it. Susan King also says, "What did you think of the Ketek poem? I for one loved it, and yes, it is a real style of poetry." I didn't know it was a real style. Did not know yeah, that. Yeah, didn't know that. Did not know it's that. Probably not called Ketek poetry. But well, we, uh, yeah. I'll have to Google it. Yeah, uh, we we did talk about that a little in the podcast. How we, we think that's pretty. Cool. I also, so my well, I've already said this, but I I I enjoyed the poem. It is another piece of evidence in what I think is going to be the ultimate end game of the series. Cool. Okay, Eric Allgaier says one last question. Sadius, Teravangian, the symbol heads, the ghost bloods all seem to be antagonists. Are any of them working in conjunction? Any of them agents of odium? 
I think yes. And it, it it's the last question. It also leads yeah. into our predictions uh, portion. So I'm going to go ahead and, and put it out there. I think that Teravangian and the Ghostbloods are working together. All right. What causes me to think that is the way in which Teravangian wants to kill Dalinar in the spirit, supposedly, of creating stability. But it looks as though what he's going to do is the exact opposite. With the Ghostbloods, we have the scenario where ostensibly the Ghostbloods and Yasna are both going after the same goal of this, and again, the same goal as Teravangian, of uncovering what's happening with the desolation and with the Voidbringers, except their behavior demonstrates that they appear to not want it to come out. So that causes me to make just a, a little bit of a wild-ass guess. Also, the fact that they're both kind of revealed at around the same time to say, I think these two are are in collusion. All right. Anything else? Yeah. So other predictions. So when Seth and Teravangian say Dalinar is the next target, you have to ask yourself, does Dalinar die? I'm going to say through book two, no, he does not die. All right. Also, we have Kaladin, who's going to be the captain of the bodyguard for the Colin family, Dalinar and Adolin and Renarin, right? And so we know how Dalin, Dalinar and Kaladin get along, but now we're going to find out how Kaladin and Adolin get along. Well, I think they're not going to get along at first because Adolin is Louis Winthorpe and Kaladin is Billy Ray Valentine. But eventually they're going to come to understand that Duke and Duke are just trying to get one over on them and fuck around with them. And then at the end, we're going to see Jamie Lee Curtis tits. It's going to be great. (laughs) So the prediction there, if you couldn't decipher that. I could not. Is that they're going to hate each other at first, but then eventually they're going to come to respect each other. Okay. Go watch Trading Places. It holds up. I I should do that. (laughs) Two other predictions about Teravangian. One, I think he has a shard blade. Okay. Two, I think he put his daughters. Was it his daughter that got rescued? Granddaughter. Granddaughter. Behind that rock. On purpose. Oh, good one. So he could observe Yasna. So those are my predictions for this section. I'm going to have some predictions around the entire book and the whole series that we'll talk about in, in episode 74. All right. So yes, episode 74, look for more predictions and we will go through fantasy casting any listeners who have suggestions in your fantasy cast we would love to read about them we would also love any and all questions you have uh leading up to the next book we'll probably go back and take a look at some of the the more absurd predictions that that are posted out there yes so we will go ahead and and kind of go back over the predictions um And then after that, we'll be taking one week break 
but look for us back the week of Thanksgiving. Yeah, the weekend after Thanksgiving. Correct. That'll be episode 75. Correct. Episode 75 with the words of radiance. Buckle up. It's going to get stormy. Ah. Ah. (laughs) Oh, it's late. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com on Twitter at the D and D podcast on our Facebook page at the Duke and Duchess, our Facebook group page at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D and D group. Also on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess podcast. Thank you to Ian James Crone who put together our Goodreads page. We've had some some activity on that page, so check that out and join that if you haven't had a chance. We got one four star review on iTunes. Is that our first? No, no we've, we've had, had other four. We've star had several reviews. four star. Four reviews. stars is good. I don't have a problem with four star reviews. I like them. Good night, everybody. Good night.